In this episode of the Transforming Society podcast, I'm talking to criminologist Mike Hoff, Emeritus Professor in the School of Law at Birkbeck University of London, about his book, Good Policing, published by Policy Press. In the book, he looks at what the principles and practices of good policing are and argues that for policing to work better, it needs to be based on legitimacy and trust. The book switches the focus from why we break laws to why we obey laws and gives us a new way of thinking about policing and crime. What is it about the relationship between us and the police that makes us inclined to comply or not? Hi, Mike. Hello, good morning. Hello, thank you for talking to me today. Um, So to start, conversations about the role and power of the police happen around specific instances, like the London riots following the shooting of Mark Duggan in 2011 um, and policing during the COVID-19 pandemic. Why do we need to talk about policing more generally and what are the underlying problems in the current system? I think the first thing to say is that UK policing definitely isn't in a state of crisis. Um, it, it, It does well relative to our European neighbours, probably much better than in the US. But when things go wrong, and they sometimes do go wrong, um, it's worth not just focusing on that particular incident, but more generally on what constitutes good policing. And my book is an attempt to open up that question at quite a general level, so that people who want to look at things like stop and search going wrong, or contacts with the police that turn out to be Uh, having tragic consequences are understood better. Okay, so your argument in the book focuses on legitimacy. So power is legitimate when its use follows rules that are seen as fair by both those with the power and those over whom the power is exercised. Can you give some examples of things that legitimise the authority of the police and also things that take it away? You're really asking me about the, the drivers of legitimacy. And yeah. what, what, what builds legitimacy of any authority, not just the police, but any authority, is uh, trust. And what builds trust is fair treatment. So, so the, the building blocks are the police treating people with respect, uh, treating them with dignity, uh, listening to what they have to say, explaining why they're doing particular things, those sorts of Uh, Human processes, if well handled, will build trust. And if the police have trust, that will legitimate their authority and make people feel that they ought to obey the police, obey their instructions, obey the rule of law, rather than feel they simply have to for fear of punishment. So thinking about respect and dignity, it's So legitimacy is bound up in the processes and how we do things rather than the outcomes of policing. And you explain this in the book um, through procedural justice theory. Um, Please, can you talk us through this? Yes, I I should say that in some ways, procedural justice theory is not the best of terms because it suggests that the police ought to be uh, uh, sticking to the rules, which of course they should be, and obeying uh, the due process it makes it sound very much to do with bureaucracy. Mm. Uh, The sorts of procedural fairness I'm talking about are to do with human processes that that make signals, signal clearly to people about their role in society. Um, If if the police treat people badly, unfairly, disrespectfully, that says 
a lot to the people involved about their status, their position in society. And unfair treatment sends out a very powerful signal that they are at the bottom of the pile and don't deserve any better. This completely erodes police legitimacy. If it's about how the police treat the people they're dealing with, do they have to feel this respect and dignity for the people they're speaking to, or do they have to pretend like they have respect and dignity for the people they're speaking to? I think that's a really important issue that hasn't been addressed enough by people researching procedural justice. Should should the police perform respect, or should they actually be respectful? Yeah. Well, it's it's pretty difficult to tell an employee what their values have to be and what their feelings have to be. Uh, I think it's reasonable to demand respectful behaviour, which is ethical, and not go so far as to say, we're the thought police and mm. you must feel this. Um, so it's a difficult issue. One obviously wants a good policeman to have uh, various moral values, but the more reasonable thing that an employer can ask of their workforce is that they behave ethically, i.e. to do with behaviour rather than internal values. Okay. I think we'll revisit that a bit later on in another another question I've got, Um, but... Just going back to the book, it includes um, lots of case notes, which I found really helpful to help me understand the concepts, one of which is hard policing, um, where police can feel that coercive force is the only option they have. And a quote from the case notes, one of them says, there's a police officer saying, local residents need to decide what they want, aggressive policing that keeps kids alive or nicey-nicey policing and more dead or injured kids. So how do police fall into these hard policing traps? What's the danger of this and how can they get out of them? The distinction between hard policing and soft policing is important for the book and important for policing generally. I think the police genuinely have a choice between coercive deterrent policing, which commands uh, consent from the public, and persuasive soft policing, which makes people feel they should obey the police. It it engenders normative commitment to the rule of law. Um, Especially when the police are policing difficult areas, the tensions between hard and soft policing get quite intense. And the, the quote you gave exemplifies very clearly how some cops in difficult areas feel. They don't believe in all this nicey-nicey stuff, um, was, was what he was saying. Well, if, that is, if hard policing is done too much, the police risk falling into a, what I've called a hard power trap, where relations with the public get so bad that there's no longer any scope for the soft, persuasive policing that secures commitment to the rule of law. Um, so if, if that particular cop kept on giving up on the idea of nicey-nicey persuasive policing and, and simply went for the, the coercive grip on the people he was policing, I think he would find himself increasingly able to use only those tactics and not soft policing tactics. And it's really important for the police to avoid driving themselves into a hard power trap. It's like a vicious circle then, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Less and less freedom to police in other ways. 
and they're stuck with simply coercive policing. And how would you get out of that if you were a police officer in a particular area and that was your MO? I suppose that comes on to training and things like that. It's one of the most difficult things facing police. If, mm. if workforce has found themselves in a hard power trap, what do they do? Well, the, the first thing is they have to have absolutely clear leadership from the police leadership and from senior management. And, and I have seen police forces where there have been really good leadership that, have, that has sent messages to the workforce to actually do procedural justice policing rather than the sort of hard, hard policing we've been talking about. So you need decent leadership. You need training, uh, training specifically in, in uh, de-escalation techniques when you're confronted with violence. Um, it's easy to say these things. It's it's going to take a long time for police who have gone too far in their balance between soft and hard power. To, if they've gone too hard in the direction of hard power, it's going to take them a, a long time to recover, but they really need to actually focus on getting out of that hard power trap. It's organisational change, isn't it, on, oh, quite, yes, yeah. on big scale? Um, and, and I should say that the, the police culture is not one that is always very sympathetic to uh, persuasive policing. Uh, they're action-orientated, no-nonsense, cynical, wanting to get results, committed. There's a, a mix of things which don't always work to support persuasive policing. I suppose it gets harder as well when you have cuts to policing as well and they're stressed and limited on time and this approach requires a bit of a step back, doesn't it? And... Um more of a long game, I suppose, in the areas that they're looking after. Yes, it does, but there's, a, there's an important but. Um, if you can actually secure people's commitment to the rule of law and they really want to obey the law, actually you need fewer resources to oh, hold yes. the police, in a, in the, the, hold the public in a tight grip. Coercive policing is expensive because you've, got to consistently demonstrate your control and your power to coerce. Um, if, if people are normatively buying into the idea of lawfulness, it's much less intensive on police resources. Yes. Not, not an obvious thing to say. No, no, but when you say it, it does make sense. Like going back to the case studies in the book, I think they illustrate it really well, and there's... There's one example where I think there are some guys sitting in a car outside their house um, and the police approach them and they do seem to be using much more soft power tactics and they're having quite a um, good conversation with these boys, aren't they? And, yeah, then, yeah. and then the mother comes out and actually this goes on to my question about policing of minority groups and race and things. Um, but the mother comes out and the whole situation changes, doesn't it? And then they move to more of a hard policing situation. She, she almost tips the whole interaction into a, a, a hard policing meltdown. Yeah, and it just it really illustrated well what a fine balance it is and how hard it is to get things right. Um, the, 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 one of the important things to come out of that little vignette is 
uh, how the police can be trapped in the history of their area and of the experiences of people over uh, years, if not generations. So the mum basically comes out and says that the police are being racist towards her son, doesn't she? And then then the situation escalates. And knowing the area, it's quite possible that she has had experiences of racist treatment or her brothers or parents have, and, and that turns the whole interaction of her kids with the police. So, you know, th- th- these are very complicated issues. Yes, yeah. Um, are there any other issues around specifically dealing with the policing of minority groups? You have a whole chapter in the book um, about that. I, th- I think it's fairly clear that uh, this country, like uh, other European countries, have, has done rather badly in integrating its uh, migrant uh, populations and especially people with a ethnic minority background. Um, I, think, I think what happens is that most migrants moving into Northern European countries come very optimistically to a place of choice. I mean, not everybody, but, but, but most people want to come to England, want to come to France or Germany. Uh, and think it's going to be a, a good place to live. And that's probably fine if, if you're part of the ethnic majority, uh, you have quite an easy landing into your new country. But if you are from a visible ethnic minority, I think you're much more likely to face discrimination uh, and economic marginalization. And you probably over generations become less committed to the country and confer less legitimacy on authority institutions like the cops. So Mm -hmm. so first generation migrants and their children are quite positive towards the the police. Later people, later generations are more skeptical about the police. Um, And I think it's useful to think in terms of interaction between the economic uh, marginalization that comes from uh, difficulties of integration, plus the way in which the police interact with minorities and especially visible minority groups. Um, it's, It's really important to improve the quality of policing for minorities because uh, bad policing, policing that uh, is disrespectful, doesn't confer dignity on the people, doesn't explain, doesn't listen, uh, sends a more powerful signal to them because they may, in any case, feel that they're having a difficult time in their chosen country or their parents' chosen country or their grandparents, whatever. And then trust breaks down even further, doesn't yeah. it? Um... But things aren't as bad, I should just say, not as bad as it is in the US, where uh, a right. different dynamic yes. uh, uh, exists, with obviously forced migration under the slave trade, rather than chosen migration, mainly from ex-colonies, which characterises the situation in many European countries. Does that mean that there is no initial trust in the US then? And is that why... The situation is maybe more diff. Is it more diff- more difficult there? Oh yes, yes, yes. Much, much more difficult because yeah. uh, 
the whole essence of slavery is to completely coerce and overwhelm people into forced labor. Right. So generations and generations of people who have been exposed to the very the most brutal form of coercion, uh, and they're trying to recover from that, and it's very difficult. Uh, I think in Europe and this country, it's there's more scope to retrieve relations between police and minority ethnic groups. Speaking of trust, um, I think during COVID-19 um, and all the laws and regulations that have been brought in here, um, some of which have had to be policed, um, I think it's kind of showed a lack of trust in government policy. And the police are seen as the people kind of almost enforcing, the police are there to enforce these policies. Um, so can police ever hope to establish their legitimacy within a political system that isn't seen as legitimate? And also I was thinking on from this question, on a similar note, within a society with so much inequality, like we were saying before, how can people trust the enforcers of a status quo that works so hard against them? I think that goes back a bit to what you were saying about the US. Yes, yes. The police haven't had an easy time of policing the COVID regulations, precisely because the, the government has made rather a mess of winning uh, public support. I mean, uh, by various errors and uh, things like the uh, Dominic Cummings uh, mm. rule-breaking events mm. uh, really damaged trust in the government. And that's obviously made it doubly hard for the police to do their job. I should say, on, on COVID regulations, after a slightly rocky start, I think the police have done rather well in uh, agreeing a graduated uh, process of uh, advising, encouraging, um, discussing, and then only after those tactics meet with no support, moving towards enforcement which is, I think, precisely right. And that's uh, actually a great example of procedural justice theory, yes, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you start with persuasion and, and your last resort is coercion. Uh, at the start of the uh, pandemic, some police were doing things like mounting roadblocks to, to demonstrate that they were seriously going to police the regulations. I think that sort of, we're going to get you, we're going to be tough here. Uh, signalling wasn't necessarily the right thing to do. Uh, but, but where they are now is in a fairly good place, I think, given the bizarre nature of the pandemic. Yeah, very bizarre. And I suppose that's a hard power, what well, could have potentially been a hard power trap as well, couldn't it, with the strong enforcements and roadblocks at the beginning? It was, it's been good that the nature of policing around COVID has turned around and it shows, yeah. shows it's possible. Indeed. One of the interesting comparisons that I think will come out of the uh, pandemic is how some countries, such as France, have favoured a, a hard policing approach rather more than the soft policing approach that we followed here. And there may be some really good learning to come from that. But we've yes. got to wait to see the dust settle. Yeah, uh, a few be, well, we know. Yeah. 
Um, so my final question for you is how do you think society would be transformed in the long term if we did a if we did adopt this approach in policing? Um, so with that improvement in the police relationship with the public, what would the knock-on effects be? Well, I should say first, the idea of policing by consent, persuasive policing, community policing, these ideas have been around for a long time. I'm talking about shifting the balance towards them and attending to legitimacy as a key criterion for good policing. Um, if police forces get more enthusiastic about procedural justice, and, and some are already very signed up to the idea, um, I think it will make for a more cohesive society with less strains between the police and public. Um, that, that's I mean, obviously desirable. Uh, there are other benefits, like, as I said earlier, hard policing is expensive. And I think it's more important that people should uh, commit to uh, the rule of law because they think it's the right thing to do than to go around in a state of anxiety about enforcement. Um, I, I want to live in a, a world where actually we, we respect this, uh, the rule of law and that's a, a widely held feeling rather than that uh, my own tendencies to misbehaviour and others are kept in check by punishment. It's, it's just the sort of world I'd like to live in is one where punishment is secondary to persuasion. Mm, me too. Yeah, definitely. Uh, thanks very much, Mike. That was an interesting discussion. Um, Mike's book, Good Policing, is available on the Policy Press website. And the website address for that is policy.bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.